116 episodes of Breaking Kayfabe with Dodron and Barry, the three best friends you didn't know you have. And out there in the Bay, we got our man, sweet Lou Kippelman, scam likely Lou Kippelman. Up in Plymouth meeting PA, it is our old friend Barry Rose. And in coming Georgia, I'll give you a second. One, two, three, four, five. Now you've made the jokes about the fact my city's name is coming. Coming Georgia, it is me, Jeff Bowdrin. Sometimes they call me the booker. Barry, another jam-packed, exciting episode. What do you think, my man? Are you ready to go? Yeah, it's exciting, too. Have you ever heard Whitney Cummings? It's one of her opening jokes, and she goes, yeah, so everybody makes a lot of fun of my name, but, you know, I had to change it from Whitney, come on my face. Uh, so, <laughs> that, was, uh, that, as far as you, I know, may have been the original name of the city. Yes. I'm not sure. There you so, go. Here on episode 216, among other things, folks, our match of the week is going to take us to October 28th, 1986, inside a steel cage, Barry. We are talking Dusty Rhodes and Ricky and Robert. Barry, I don't know if you know, they were called the Rock and Roll Express. Were you familiar with that uh, term? I think I've heard of this team. Southern team, perhaps? Uh, maybe, maybe. All right. uh, the Rock and Roll Express. And they are going up against, oh, the dastardly and villainous Ric Flair and Ole and Arn Anderson inside a steel cage. Fun match. Barry liked it because it was all told. Entrances and exits less than 15 minutes. That's the kind of stuff Barry likes with his Five 80. Stars. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> So we're going to talk about that match. We are also going to be discussing films that have been banned. Ooh, Barry. And we're not non-pornographic, although there may be some pornographic elements to a couple of the films. I'll just say that. And we're going to throw out some other stuff for you guys to enjoy. Barry, you know, before we get to the match of the week, we may have neglected to mention something when we talked about the fan fest in beautiful metropolitan Lutz, Florida recently. And that's just how much fun Ricky and Robert were uh, in the Q&A segment. It, it, look, Ricky and Robert were, uh, the Q&A segment was great. And you said something to me immediately. And, and I was, be, you know, with the event and all that. And because Penzer decides to sit at the table for, for three hours. Who? And leaves. Who? Exactly. Cash ask money. Me about, ask me about Dave Penzer. Yeah. What about Dave Penzer, Jeff? Who? Who? Okay. So it was, uh, so I was running around. I had a lot to do and uh, a lot to check out, but I came back in the room and you were right there and you said, you know, if Ricky ever decides to get into the ministry, he would have a really successful career. And as you said that he was, what Ricky did was he left the table, the Q and a table, and he was in the middle of the crowd standing above everybody with the microphone. Like he was, it was, it was incredible to see it. Robert was behind him. Robert was still at the table, but, you know, Ricky would talk and then Robert would go, that's right, Ricky, you know, and he would always have like his back with that, but they were there, these two guys. And I met them. I think I had told you, I met them with our old friend, Nick Massey. And I worked at the, I worked the table with Ricky and Robert three years ago. I don't know what it was. And it, they watching the interaction with these guys, with the fans, they, they were a natural for what we're trying to do in Tampa. So they were great. And then they, of course, partied with us. I think Robert was out till 2, 2.30 in the morning partying with all of us. And it was just a lot of fun, Jeff. Still, I, I, I go back and I had a conversation this past week with somebody who was not at the Fan Fest. And they said, where does this one rank for you? And I said, it's my favorite. I said, it's my all-time favorite. It wasn't that, you know, I, I do think the Ricky Steamboat segment will always be, I think, the highlight, right? That that was it. It just, I never saw anything ever like that, especially from Steamboat. 
but this overall tone and vibe, and really, I think the credit, Jeff, goes to the brothership because the brothership came, they saw, they kicked Lutz's ass, and this was a three-day party, one of which, a week and a half later, I'm still on the couch, still trying to recover from, Jeff. Well, I will say that the most surprising element of the entire weekend, what do you think that was, Barry? Uh, the most surprising element of the entire weekend was, I don't know, what was it for you, Jeff? How fucking hilarious Robert Gibson is. Because, you know, traditionally, back in the day when they were, you know, at their zenith, I was about to say penultimate, but I won't say that. Mm. When they were at their zenith, Ricky was known for for taking care of the interviews, okay? And Robert would sit there and go, rock and roll, brother, rock and roll. And that was pretty much <laughs> the extent of it. But when these two were working the room, and that's exactly what they were doing, they were working the room like, you know, they were, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a, a big name preacher, but like uh, Jimmy Swagger or something. Wow, I don't know where that came up with that one, but wow. I pulled that one out yeah. of my hat. But anyway, that Ricky would work the room, and then he would say something. I, we were joking about it earlier. Like he would say, you know, I remember when Robert and I were working uh, Thibodeau, Louisiana, and let me tell you about that crowd. And then Robert would jump in and go, that crowd is crazy, brother. And it was like an old married couple that would finish each other's sentences, you know? And I mean that completely in the best way. But you were sitting there, and then, you know, because I was working as a moderator, I was going to, thought you were going to say I was the best part of the whole fan fest, but that's another story. So I'm sitting off to the side, and as I'm doing that, and Ricky was working the crowd, Robert would come over and start talking with me about stuff and like, you know, just crack. Oh, here's what you need to do. Play a rib on Ricky. Do this brother. And like, you know, I'm going, we never saw this fucking side of his personality. And maybe, you know, who's to say maybe 35 years ago, he didn't have this side of his personality and it's been developed over going to all these fan fests and conventions and stuff like that. But Robert Gibson was absolutely hilarious, Barry. He was, and you know what, and, and hey, you're right about that because we never saw that. Robert, so this is what I liked about this as well, and this is this is what makes me proud, I guess, of this event is that, you know, Robert is outside and Robert says to me, you know, and, and we don't pay the most of any fan fest, you know, you, you go to a fan fest like the big event in New York. Are and, you trying to say Dave Penzer does not put out that kind of cash money? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, and neither do I. Let's be honest. No. So it's right because, well, the whole idea is we keep these fan fests really. So you read the article from Greg Rog, uh, which was a great article, by the way. But we keep these things really small because we want you to be able to party with the talent. We want you to be able to have a good time, let all your guards down and just, you know, just party, just have fun. And uh so Robert said to me, we were outside at night and Robert and Howard touched on this. Howard Baum touched on this and said Robert was doing shoot holds and shoot maneuvers and they were legit. I guess he had learned this along the way. But he said to me, he goes, you know, we usually do some of these events and we get like $50 just to sign a belt and we make all this money. He goes, we made a lot less money, but I got to tell you, this is the most fun I've had at one of these fan fests in years. And a lot of the talent says it, you know, what we do again, it's completely different. I was talking to somebody also about this yesterday and none of this was by design. It's kind of like the podcast. It's like you plant the seeds. Let's see where all this goes. Maybe something will work. Maybe it won't work. You know, throw a lot of shit up against the wall. Hope some of it sticks. Very similar to what we did with the fan fest. We had an idea, but who knew, right? Who knew where we were going to get to that end? This last one was just absolutely incredible. But it lets guys like Robert Gibson 
it lets them, you know, put their guard down. It lets them be themselves. He's outside drinking and partying with all the fans for four and five hours and they're exchanging phone numbers and they're texting. It's like, you know, and initially this was the funny thing. Ricky and Robert, when they found out that they were going to be staying in the same hotel as the fans, there was a little bit of concern, you know, and Penzer tried to say, it's a small group. You're not going to have people knocking on your door at 2 a.m. or anything like that. And they didn't, as far as I know. So, you know, there's a little bit of hesitancy initially from guys like Robert and Ricky. And then during the event, they're thrilled. They're like, when can we come back? And Robert said, he goes, when do you want to have us back? And I'm like, I'm sure we will, you know. So, yeah, he, he uh, was. And, and of down. course, he really was. The, the other benefit is what happens is uh, don't think that these guys don't talk to one another. And, you know, Robert Gibson will talk to somebody or Ricky Morton uh, or Jerry Jarrett or people that we've had in the past, people that you uh, you and Mr. Penzer might be considering for future fan fest. will sit there and say, uh, yeah, if you ever uh, work with these guys and, and when they hear positive things, like you just said, Ricky and Robert had to say that gets back to the future guest and they go, well, OK, these people are good to work with. We're going to have a good time. We're going to make some money. And it's, it's not going to be your typical fan fest. And maybe that's the way you should advertise it. It's not your typical fan fest because as Barry has said before, this is not like there's a line of 150 people. You get up there. It's like, how you doing? Shh, move along. You know, they sign your, your belt or your, your picture or your magazine. And it's like the line, you could see the line move. No, this is where you get to spend time with guys that you were fans of when you were younger or when you were a kid. You get to ask them, you know, questions at the Q&A segment. And, and again, it's funny because before we started recording, I was talking with our executive producer, Brian Last, and I told him about the Fan Fest. And I said, you know, I said, one of the things that I try to do as a moderator for these events is I don't want to ask the guys the same damn questions they hear every single weekend. I don't want to ask them, uh, tell us about your feud with the, uh, uh, the Midnight Express and Jim Cornette, some memories of that. Because guess what? They're asked that every single week try to come up with a question howard baum asking a question about buddy wayne and guy coffee how many times do you think that those guys have been asked about guy coffee you know i mean maybe if they're in memphis doing a fan fest somebody ask them that but you come down to tampa you come down to tampa and somebody ask you about buddy wayne or guy coffee that just doesn't happen so these guys appreciate the fact that they're being asked questions that they're not asked every weekend and I don't, I don't mean just this for Ricky and Robert, I, anybody, if you go to a convention, you know, uh, Nick Massey has these, uh, these fan uh, meet and greets up there. Ask, you know, if he's got whoever he has, ask the people something that they're not used to hearing every single week that makes it, you know, these experiences monotonous. Ask them something that they haven't heard, maybe not ever, but like, okay, I haven't been asked that question in the last four years. It makes it a little bit more interesting. And it makes these guys and women want to come out more and do more events like Barry puts on. Well, and this is very similar to what we do when we interview people on our podcast. The first thing we do is we always like with Jacques Rougeau, when we had him on last month, the first thing you said was, we're not going to even go near the Dynamite Kid thing. Why? Because it's been asked every fucking time there's an interview. Exactly. We're going to go in a different way. I will say Jerry Jarrett, pulled me to the side and he said, I don't do a lot of these things. He loved it. He loved being a part of what we did. And he was driven home. Jerry lived about three hours away. He's got a, a house on the West coast of Florida, but it was about three hours away. And, uh, somebody who was in attendance that day actually brought him to the show 
And then somebody else actually drove him home. And he talked about it on the way home saying that, you know, I, I do a lot of these and, you know, I shake a hand, I take a selfie, I sign an autograph, but to be able to sit and answer questions and, and, you know, 99% of the questions are always respectful. There's always 1%. I don't think Jerry got, I know Ricky got a ring rat question, but you know, how would you not ask Ricky Morton from the 1980s? About and by the way, his answer was hilarious. <laughs> his answer was great. Exactly. You know, and it was an honest answer and it was hilarious, but we try to do something different. And to what you said as well, Jeff, I have advertised this as not your average fan fest. That was our tagline. The problem is if you don't experience what we do, all you're seeing are words up on a screen. So when I say not your average fan fest, people are still reading it and going, okay, but it's a fan fest, right? <laughs> it's still... If you don't experience it, you don't understand. The lines are low, but the money aspect of it, you could have come to the last event. We had eight wrestlers there, you know, Jerry Jarrett, Rock and Roll Express, Bugsy McGraw, Jerry Briscoe. Uh, we had eight wrestlers there. You could have gotten a photo and an autograph with all eight of those wrestlers for $60. If you go to a regular fan fest, it's generally $20 for an autograph. $20 for a photo, or you pay $30 for a combo. So we are also the cheapest. And why? Because money's not really the object. We're not looking, you know, I'm not getting rich from this by any stretch. Uh, you know, a lot, in most cases I was breaking even this last one was a little more well attended. So, you know, I'm happy to say I'm able to, to get a little something from it. But with that, the idea is I go down and I have a shitload of fun. I had what's arguably, you know, some of the most fun I've had in years at the last fan fest. And that to me is more important than anything else. And I will say that based on what I've been reading, uh, not only on, uh, your CWF page, Barry, but on our, uh, our brothership, uh, Facebook group, that there are people that have not attended these before. I, I noticed, I don't know if it was today or yesterday that your favorite New York city cop, Richard Dawson, no, not the former host of Family Feud, New York City's finest, Richard Dawson, making the trek down to Lutz in June. He's apparently made his reservation, and he is ready to come down. Anybody else you've noticed? Uh, I know people have, you know, Travis was talking about bringing his wife down. The thing that probably surprised me as much as anything was the fact that the guys, uh, including myself, that brought their wives, the wives had a good time, you know? Yeah, that and that's a big thing because, you know, and, and this is not, you know, obviously, I don't know if I'm divorced yet or not, as we talk about every week. I, I did check the mail yesterday. I didn't see any paperwork. But if I had brought my wife down to this thing, she would uh, not have been happy. And that, would, <laughs> and that would have made it a bad time for me. So. And that's not a knock on her. I, I get it. I also understand it. But the fact that your wife, we talked about Frankie Seacrest bringing his wife, Jana. She had a good time. Uh, Kelly Miller, who is the longtime girlfriend of Ben James. Kelly has been to every event and she has as good a time as any of us, if not more. So, uh, Kelly, there, by the way, uh, we shared our uh, consumable story from my uh, when I had my battle with cancer that I've uh, talked about here on the show. And, and I was sharing the story with Kelly and my wife and I were telling her the story privately. And uh, it was uh, rather amusing because uh, I think there were some uh, what was it some fruity pebbles that were floating around the fan fest, Barry. My God. So it, 
Yes, there were fruity pebble treats that were consumable. By, you by like the to way, call Richard them. Dawson, don't listen to this part of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Dawson, this is the part. Yeah, you, you may want to turn in early some nights. Skip ahead well, like but, 30, 45 seconds. Go ahead. Yes, but these fruity pebble treats were absolutely amazing. They were fantastic. And Jeff, I shared your story with somebody, and I don't because my memory is fading at this point, and I'm starting to notice that. I shared your consumable story with someone. And I don't know if it was at the fan fest or after I got back to PA, we were talking and you know, the, the average consumable edible is somewhere between 10 to 25 milligrams. And if I'm correct, yours was 750 milligrams. It which, may have been enhanced a certain amount. Yeah. <laughs> so, I can, I can now tell you Barry that after what happened recently with my, my father passing away, and we went down for the funeral service. There was, uh, I, I don't know if I mentioned this last week or not, but they did a very nice service out the local Elks Lodge for my dad. My dad was a, a member of the Elks Lodge for, God, like 30 years and uh, very proud of it. And so they did a very nice service for him. So afterwards, uh, they had arranged sort of a hot plate dinner for the family. So we're sitting around. So I had my cousins, Brian, Sheila, and Mary Ellen there, along with my mother and my sister and some other relatives. And so I began to share the story with my mother in attendance <laughs> of what happened to me uh, those uh, couple of days. My cousins laughing hysterically while my mom uh, trying not to laugh out loud, but I think she was maybe covering her mouth as she didn't want her son to see that she was laughing. The story it was a kind of funny story. But anyway, uh, these events always you have tons of fun. You know, whether you go the gamut from uh, a New York City cop like Richard Dawson to people that you mentioned that have been at Travis, uh, Ben and Kelly. I think Howard Bow mentioned it. You get all these people from all these different walks of life that are all uh, meeting together, whether it's, you know, through friendship that's been made on Facebook, through wrestling, you Dr. know, Philip as I- Philip Kahn, Jeff. So yes, yeah, we had a plastic surgeon bring his mother as well. Board uh, certified. Board certified. certified. And, and now replacing and supplementing Rodney Sobelson is the best dressed attendee. That's true. This yeah, guy where were you like at, Rodney, dollars. by the way? Yeah, Rodney uh, was there. Rodney doesn't come out and party with us, but he was oh, there. Okay. All right. Brandon Rice is coming in from Vegas. Drew Samuels coming in from Indiana. So we do have a bunch Drew, of. I'll be time. driving through Indiana in the next couple of days. I'm just going to say that. Very nice. Yeah. So, but not the point is, you know, here we have all these people. I said this a really long time ago. It's like the song by Fleetwood Mac, The Chain. You have all these links and a chain, and they're all brought together through wrestling. You know, that's that's the initial thing that people have in common. And then you you meet people that, oh, gee, I didn't know you like uh, football. Uh, yep. You know, uh, I didn't know you like uh, this sport or you like this band, uh, You that you like this TV show. Uh, you, that you like uh, consumables, you know, you get all these different things. Oh, I didn't know you, uh, you're a fan of, uh, I'm just going to throw this like Budweiser. Okay. Uh, you know, that's my favorite beer too. And all of a sudden you're having a beer with that person and you sit there and you start, you know, sharing your different experiences. And that's what Howard mentioned, the, the sharing of life experiences and, you know, Howard extremely reticent to, you know, go and do this because he's kind of a, keeps to himself a lot. And he said what a great time that he had, you know, and that he really enjoyed himself. And I think that's really says a lot, not just for you, Barry, but for all the people that come. We don't even have to advertise that no assholes are permitted. And yet no one shows up being an asshole. Not even. So there is a great point that you've got a hundred and something people and 
nobody's being an asshole. Everybody's just having a great time. What are time. the odds of that happening? <laughs> exactly. You play the fucking lottery. Let me tell you, Jeff, and there was a conversation just to touch on that point that you had just made about where Howard had said, you know, people are talking about music and all this other stuff as well. I sat outside with Ben James and, and Ben is a, is a close friend at this point as well. I've known Ben now for several years and we have a lot in common. And, you know, I talk to Ben all the time. And so I'm sitting outside with Ben. This is Saturday night at some point. I think you're already over at Glory Days and I'm getting ready to make my way over. And Ben is wearing Sean Kemp sneakers. And we get into this deep discussion of Sean Kemp and how in some ways Sean Kemp was the Buddy Landell of basketball, you know, like here was a I guy. Know, did that, Buddy have that many kids? <laughs> Buddy did. I don't think Buddy had John like was well kids known by, for the, uh, yeah. the, the kids. But again, and really the point was he loved Sean Kemp. I think that was his favorite NBA player. And I said, you know, I like Sean Kemp, but it, it hurts me because I think Sean Kemp, we should be talking about one of the greatest of all time, maybe, or at least top 25. And instead, Here's a guy that makes it to the NBA playoffs in the finals and blows it off because he's having personal issues. And, you know, and again, his career at that point he, with weight and all that was never the same. But we talked for like 20 minutes as we kept bringing up all these different names of the Buddy Landells of the NBA. And I get home a few days later and there's a message from Ben and it said, you know, do you remember that conversation we had? And I said, of course I do. And he said, I think that would be a great topic for you guys to discuss. So I Jeff, I throw that out there to you right now. Maybe we do talk about even the NFL. You know, there's a lot, right? A lot of, oh, lot you, of could, you could you could mention guys in like all the major sports that have, sure. uh, you know. And, and if we want to really make it uh, like a a worldwide uh, topic, we could discuss guys in uh, soccer or, as they say in the other countries, football. Uh, you know, because there have notoriously been guys that were fantastic players that had their careers screwed up, whether it's because of drugs or alcohol. You know, and that's something yeah. that happens or, or uh, horrible as it is to say, you have guys that have mental health issues, you know, Which your own, I think a lot of it does play into sure. Sure. Like your own Ben Simmons there in Philadelphia. Yeah. Well, and with that, if you do include soccer, that could be the shortest segment in show history. Cause I know complete dick about no, soccer. No, but, you know, no, <laughs> right. I, I understand, but the, there, yeah. I know an, I, and I'm not a huge fan of soccer, but you know, growing up, I went to the strikers games and I knew about, you know, different guys that came over to play for the strikers. And, you know, I, when the World Cup comes on uh, or things like that, I watch I watch soccer for the World Cup because, quite frankly, it's not just the, the the soccer and the football. It's the spectacle of it, you know, because the fans and the way the fans are so just like here when we do our matches, the way the fans react. So but, you know, that absolutely is a fair topic, Barry. Yeah, it was good, too. And I uh, I can definitely do basketball. We can do a deep one on basketball. The NFL, I actually not as deep, not nearly as deep as you, but uh, from a cursory level, I could do it. Baseball, possibly hockey. I don't think I could. And even though I like hockey, I don't think I could come up with five guys that uh, who squandered their careers based off of bad decisions. But yeah, I do like it. But I think the point being was when you said about what Howard said, music was a huge topic that weekend. Everybody and uh, Craig Halleck, I think, was wearing a uh, a shirt. And people were trying to find Craig. They didn't know who he was or what his name was, but I guess he had had some music discussions with people and people were trying to locate Craig based off of his T-shirt because they wanted to continue these music discussions. How fucking cool is that? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. So speaking of music, let's get back to the Rock and Roll Express. Hey, oh, that's a segue. Oh, did you like that? 
Damn, I, that was good. I am a master of that. Barry, what do you say we talk about our match of the week? So, Barry, our match of the week, I decided, you know, do I want to give you another 60-minute, uh, you know, Jumbo Saruta, Tenru match, or Misawa Kobashi? I said, no, I'll be a good guy. I'll be a nice I'm a giver, Barry. Have we established that here? <laughs> yes, we have. We are givers, if nothing yes. else, Jeff. So, I decided, let's give Barry Rose... A nice week. We're going about a 12 to 15 minute cage match. Hot spots. Brawling. Oh, Barry, we're going to Crockett country. We are talking October 28, 1986. Inside the steel cage, Rock Hill, South Carolina. It's Ric Flair, Ole and Arn Anderson taking on Dusty Rhodes and the Rock and Roll Express. What'd you think of this match, Bear? Yeah, just to clarify, too, with my ADD, Jeff, anything past about 15 minutes, I'm exactly. <laughs> yeah, you I'm start like, to wander, yeah. I, I start to wander a bit, and I'm going, what am I doing? Yeah, so exactly. So great match. This is a match really from, I think, such a great year for Crockett and Crockett Enterprises. And, uh, you know, I had some great. So th- this is kind of what you expect. I mean, you've got, you've got six guys that spent a lot of time together, the six guys that worked with each other quite a lot. And you're you're throwing them in a steel cage, so you're going to have a good match. Let's talk about the negative first off. So where I normally say Japanese commentary works, it didn't quite work for this match. And I think it's some. First off, I don't know why. Any idea why the why there was Japanese? I mean, obviously it aired in Japan, but yeah, this was a match that was taped for Japanese television. It was a uh, part of a a W. I don't know what to say an NWA worldwide taping. But I think the Japanese were were taping it. Or, or at least they were the ones that, you know, broadcast because, you know, that wasn't completely unusual at the time for the, you know, there's, I think we discussed in the past a, uh, a match with, uh, with Ricky Morton and Ric Flair that was taped for Japanese television. And there've been other matches that, you know, especially Crockett would have the, the Japanese guys come in and, uh, they would do, uh, either film it or Crockett would film it specifically to be shown on Japanese TV. Yeah, and I just I think I think if anything, we're normally I, I obviously the matches from Japan with Japanese commentary. I always rave. I I think that they do a great job. This one, they are they're maybe a little more sedate, and I I kept thinking, you know, I think if Tony uh, Shivani and Bob Cottle were had been calling this match, I think it would have been maybe a little more uh, exciting for me. So a couple of thoughts. It's a great match. Robert Gibson, his back is all taped up. Any idea what the angle was with that and why his back was injured? Well, I'm, you know, first of all, you got Robert with the uh, taped back and, and rib area, and you got Dusty wearing the brace. I think Dusty's brace was from the uh, the incident in the parking lot. Make it good. Make it good. And that's why they were he had the brace. Robert, I'm sure they had shot some sort of angle where the Andersons maybe had roughed him up during a match. And so he's the, you got two guys in the babyface side that are uh, that are selling the injury. I don't know if this is either pre or post Ricky Morton getting his nose broken, but uh you know there was lots of stuff going on with the rock and roll, Dusty and the uh, the four horsemen at the time. Gotcha. Dusty does something too, Jeff. I I'm going to assume throughout the years whether it's in person or through the magic of videotape, I have seen I'll say a thousand Dusty Rhodes matches, maybe more, I don't know. I have never seen him do a belly-to-belly suplex, <laughs> which he did. It was his personal tribute to Magnum TA, I believe. Oh, was it really? I don't know. I'm no, no, but that, that would actually. So yeah. what What was the date on this match? 
Uh, well, it was taped on October 28th, 1986. I don't think it was shown for whatever reason. They didn't show it for another couple of months. So maybe, maybe uh, while we're talking, maybe Lou can check to see what the date of the Magnum TA accident was. But it was right around this time frame. So that would make a actually, lot of I was, sense. I was though. being sarcastic, but it, maybe that's actually what it was, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think I, actually that, that would make a lot of sense because I never saw him do it. Actually, it wasn't terrible either. It certainly wasn't Magnum level, but it wasn't terrible. So a couple of thoughts with this one, Jeff. So these are going to be questions and then conspiracy observations. The Rock and Roll Express and... Was there a team, these guys, they were the most over overacting in, in the NWA at this stage. I, I don't think anybody would actually debate that they were super popular. They were super over. Probably was the it, only, I would say the only person who may have been close before the accident was Magnum. Right, as, right. As but as far as getting out of the visceral equation. reaction from the crowd, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and Ricky Morton especially. Hold super on one over. second. Lou chiming in that the accident had taken place on the 14th of October, two weeks before this was taped. So. I, I have to believe that's exactly what he was doing. Mystery solved. hundred yes. percent. I would thank agree you, with Lou. that. Yeah. Thank you, Lou. So with, with Ricky Morton, as I'm watching this too, and a couple of thoughts, because you can see where Ricky Morton is doing the heavy lifting for the team. Dusty will get, you know, unlike Robert, they, they really have a, they had a great chemistry, but Dusty will get the hot tag. I don't want to bash Dusty, but he makes it about himself. Everything we've said. No. Previously. Exactly. Yada, 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 yada. But so this, this had me thinking as I'm watching this and realizing the title change with Ronnie Garvin is still, you know, maybe 10 months away or whatever it was. Ricky Morton should have gotten the NWA title over Garvin, right? I mean, I think we can say he was at the end of the day. Whether you love Garvin, and I, I was fine with Garvin. It isn't like a, I'm anti-Garvin in any, but from a business perspective, Ricky Morton was the top fucking babyface. Why would you not put the title on the guy, and why would you put it on a guy who was essentially mid-card, maybe upper mid-card, and nowhere near the level over that Ricky Morton was, unless there was some sort of political bullshit taking place with the Booker, hence Dusty Rhodes, we're talking about it. I'm at a loss as I'm watching this going. Ricky Morton and Flair, just watching them work together in this match, you could see it. Flair loved working with Ricky Morton. He was doing all of his spots. Everything's perfect. And they wind up putting the title on Garvin a few months later and, and not, not Morton. And I can't for the life of me figure out, and I think it was part of the Dusty, nobody can be more popular than I am. That, that's my whole conspiracy theory with it. My second part of that is the Rock and Roll Express. Was there ever a discussion, and I don't ever recall it, with them going to the WWF, especially at, at the height? If their contract with Crockett, I'm going to assume, was going to expire in a year or two after this, that just seems like a natural to me that they would have gone. Not, not that I have any faith that the Federation would have done the right thing with the Rock and Roll Express, but I would think that they would still want to have them. So did you ever hear any? Because I don't recall ever hearing. No, I, I you know, as you as you bring it up, I don't ever recall in the Observer hearing any talk about that. I, you know, of course, they ended up going there. What was it like mid 90s when they were working in Smoky Mountain? I think they made a couple of appearances up there on pay-per-views or like in the Survivor Series, something like that. Uh, when the uh, the Heavenly Bodies went up there. But I don't I don't recall. And, you know. They took the Midnight Rockers, who were like the Rock and Roll Express two times removed. Uh, uh, you know, if we always said that the the Fantastics were the Rock and Roll Express, you know, 
part two, then the, I guess the Midnight Rockers would have been uh, Rock and Roll Express, you know, part three. And I'm not shitting on Marty and Sean. They were they were a really good team in the ring and stuff like that. They had their problems out of the ring, but in the ring, they were certainly fine. But I don't know that what was happening at the time in the Federation, somehow I just see them completely screwing the pooch on that. Yeah, I, I think we I think we we have enough faith in the WWF that they would have completely screwed it up. But even if there had been some consideration to maybe bring, and again, I'll I'll do hypothetical booking, right? So you bring them in, you've got the Rockers there, and I don't know, I think the Rockers came in around '88, so we're not too far off. Yeah. Rock and Roll Express comes in; they are the older, more veteran, pretty boy tag team. They get jealous of all the success of the Midnight Rockers, and they turn heel. And they, okay. they get a okay. great first manager. Of all, first of all, first of all, I'm the guy they call the booker. Don't you be Sorry. coming up with booking ideas, mister. Yeah. Okay, go ahead, please. Yeah, no, but that that's <laughs> what I think. I think that it would have, uh, I think it would have made a lot more sense. Oh, that, I could see where that would have surprised that they. I mean, you know, have, I could, I could see them bringing Ricky and Robert up when they brought Tully and Arn, because that would have been instant, instant chemistry. You know, those four would have worked great matches together. And if there was a case where Vince, you know, decided, okay, I want to put this one fucking match on each card that's going to, you know, be the match that's going to be there for the fans, that's going to be a kick-ass match, that would have been an obvious thing for them to do. But, you know, obviously Rick, or uh, Rick, I don't know who Rick is, uh, Vince fell in love with Shawn Michaels very early on. He he put up with a lot of, I mean, a lot of bullshit for Shawn Michaels. So, uh, you know. Uh, obviously, I think the fact that the Midnight Rockers were maybe already there prevented uh, the Rock and Roll Express from coming in. But the, the point you make with the Rock and Roll Express being the jealous of the new, you know, younger team, uh, Rock and Roll team, would have made sense. Especially because I think history, if it's not, if it's shown anything, is when you try to duplicate something that's already been a success, it never works quite as well as it did the first time. Boy, that's true. And that's, we should say that actually holds true with movies and films because my God, or do they try to remake all these movies and just about every single one of them, not only critically panned, but commercially panned, yet they still get the green light with all these remakes that seem to always fail. So makes no sense to me, Jeff. Yeah, no, I get it. Anyway, so uh, you finished talking about the match? I, I think I am. Okay. So a couple of things I wanted to point out. First of all, only in this match, He's really starting to to appear old. I don't mean physically. Ole was always old looking. I mean, in the match, he just seemed like he was a step slower than the other guys. I, I get that he did not work the Rock and Roll Express style. He, it, it was just too fast for him. And I've seen them in matches, uh, he and Arn against uh, Ricky and Robert, that I've enjoyed. This one, man, maybe he was having a bad night. Maybe he was sick. Who knows? But he just looked a step slow, as did Dusty. Dusty and Ole by this point really had kind of had begun to hit the wall. And uh, the, this was the point where, you know, you'd like to think that they would take a step back and, you know, be more of like the the legend that would work middle of the card to begin bringing up younger talent and uh, putting a rub on them. But, of course, we know that didn't happen. Arn Anderson, is this the longest you've ever seen Arn Anderson's follically challenged head? <laughs> yes because his yes, hair he's got the flip in the back he's still he, you know he's not completely beginning to lose the the fight against male pattern baldness but as i watched i was like man Arn's hair is kind of long here you know and uh unfortunately uh 
as some of us are want to do, Barry. Uh, Arn lost that struggle, much like you and I. <laughs> yeah. Um, How dare the, you? Yeah, I know. Yeah. So one of the things that has been lost in professional wrestling, I really believe, is because, you know, you, you certainly, even for everything good you might want to say about AEW, and there are some good, there are some bad, there is nobody I can think of that causes the sort of visceral reaction from especially the female fans that the Rockland Express did. And there's a point in this match where the heels are working over Robert Gibson and working over there, whether it's the back, the ribs, whatever. And you hear the girls in the front rows and they are screaming, like just losing their shit screaming because Oh my God, the heels are working over Robert Gibson. Anyway, they weren't even working over Ricky Morton. They were working over Robert Gibson and they're losing their shit, Barry. Yeah, they, uh, they looked the, again, the rock and roll express, my God, were they over, they, they could print money. And you know, it, again, wrestling is always going to be amazing to me. And I brought up this analogy before, but if McDonald's puts something on the menu and it doesn't sell, they remove it. And you could take really any fast food restaurant that does that. And if something does sell and the public wants it and wants to spend their money on it, they will push this till the fucking high heavens, right? So only in wrestling could you have an act like the Rock and Roll Express where I'm going to say potentially probably millions of dollars were lost because of Dusty's ego. And, and quite frankly, Jim Crockett Jr. bears a lot of the responsibility. He was the father. You know, let's say Dusty is the older brother, the Rock and Roll Express or the younger siblings. The father's got the the uh, you know, he's the one who's got to step up. He's got to say, I'm sorry, but this isn't right. And again, you know, there's so much money was lost because Dusty manipulated. And again, I, this shouldn't be a Dusty bashing segment, no. though. Clearly, that's what it is at the moment. But well, uh, I, I mean, let's look at it from a musical point of view. And I'm okay. going to go way back here. OK, sure. uh, there's a reason that when the Jacksons were the Jackson five, that Michael Jackson began being pushed to the uh, the forefront, okay? Uh, he was the one that was attracting all the audience. I, I mean, obviously, he had incredible talent, okay? But they could have pushed Tito, okay? They didn't. The Osmonds, <laughs> you know, they could have pushed Jay, but they yes. didn't. They pushed Donnie because he was the one that got all the reaction from the fans and the young, the younger female fans, and that's what Michael was getting at the time. And, you know, I'm sure we could bring this into the 80s and stuff. Uh, there's reasons why other bands put guys out in front. There's a reason Bon Jovi sold so many friggin' tickets. Part of it was his music, and part of it was because young women thought that he was really hot. And, you know, they, it, John, going back to the friggin' Beatles, they hid the fact that John Lennon was married because they didn't want the young female fans to know, oh, God forbid, one of the Beatles is married, you know? And, and you could bring that forward to what we're talking about today. Let's be honest, Dusty Rhodes put the kibosh on Ricky and Robert as successful as they were in Crockett. They could have been more successful. They could have been an even bigger deal. But Dusty Rhodes, you're right, his ego, he got his panties in a bunch at these guys becoming more popular than him. And really what should have happened is when the uh, the the movement to the front of the car or the top of the car that began with Magnum T.A., should have also led to Dusty starting to step back. Now, of course, when Magnum got hurt, if Dusty wanted to put himself back up there to kind of make up for the loss of Magnum, I, I can understand that. 
But you know what? That shouldn't have been some sort of long-term, over-a-year plan. That That's the kind of thing that you do, uh, like, when they turn Nikita. You do that, boom, and then, you know, after you've had that instantaneous pop, you start reconsidering. You take that step back, and you evaluate, okay, now, is this what's best for the company, or is this what's best for me? And I think that's something that Dusty had a real hard time doing, is evaluating the difference between what was best for the company and what was best for him. Well, Absolutely. And by the way, that's all, the first time I think we've ever brought up Donny Osmond on this fine podcast. Or or and definitely the first time that Jay Osmond ever got it. Or Tito Jackson. <laughs> Jay was a hell so. of a talent. Oh yeah. Where is he the, now though? <laughs> down on the lazy river was a huge hit. <laughs> oh, it's my favorite, Jeff. That's my absolute favorite. So here's the crazy thing. So what you're just saying about Dusty is correct. So Dusty put his ego first, which we can break all this down. Dusty is the booker and having points in the promotion cost himself. Oh yeah. By, so he cost himself probably tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to satisfy his ego for Dusty to stay on top. He took stacks of money and pushed it away. Holy shit. <laughs> That's all I have to say. You know what should never have been in business. As my father used to say in words that I've always lived by, if you're in business for any other reason to make money, you should not be in business. Because you know, and, and, the and name we've the said game. it before here, but Jim Crockett Jr., you know, last week we discussed uh, who should be in the Hall of Fame. And we did not include Jim Crockett Jr., who's one of the guys on that has to be over 50 percent. And I pointed out that there was a lot of things that Jim Crockett Jr. did correct and successfully as a promoter. Sure. OK, made a lot of money. But ultimately. Where Jim Crockett Jr. failed is that Jim Crockett Jr. should have had that conversation with Dusty, and it should have happened right about this time period, where he said he should have said, "Okay, look, we're beginning to see a little money loss here, and you either need to fix this shit, or I'm going to bring in somebody else." You know the the stories about the you know the 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 Lear Jets. Yep. And, you know, all this money that Dusty pissed away, you know, uh, they go out to Los Angeles. It's a complete fucking disaster. And instead of doing this and saying, I, I don't fucking care, we're going to keep doing this and and until I say no. No, at some point you pull back the fucking reins and say, let me take a step back and look at this. And he refused to do that. And that's on Jim Crockett Jr. for not having the ability yep. and have, having lost the ability no matter how big a deal Dusty Rhodes was, he should have said, okay, I'm sorry, uh, either you change or I'm making a change. He didn't do that, and ultimately that's why I don't think that we could give him the vote for Hall of Fame. Uh, let me just mention a couple other things about the match before we go on. Uh, we had Arn and Flair both getting color in the match. So I have a question. There is a point in the match where, I can't even remember who does it, but one of the heels gives, uh, I believe it's Ricky Morton, uh, I want to call it like an inverted atomic drop. You know you know what the spot I'm talking oh, about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, how come that move never works on the baby faces, but every time they do it to a heel, <laughs> it's the groin shot being sold? Apparently, if you're a baby face, you have an iron constitution where your testicles will not be impacted, but if you're a heel, by God, any sort of remote contact with the genitalia Excellent use of the word genitalia, by the way, will cause you immediately to go into convulsions, Barry. So I got to say, personally, I love when people, Jeff, and this would be, include you for the moment, 
try to apply logic to anything <laughs> related to professional wrestling. I just think it's, you know, so what about guys jumping off the top rope with their knee on a guy's throat, right? Which would of really course, kill yes. somebody, yes, but this course. happens all the time in wrestling. So I, I love when I hear this, all of it, Jeff, is when you, when you really break it down, it's all absolutely ridiculous on a lot of different levels. Of course. So I do have one question, the pinfall, which Dusty, I thought Dusty had pinned Ole. But in doing some research on this match, someone else, when I was looking up, they thought it was Arn. Who did you see getting pinned? I saw Arn. I saw Okay, Arne. so I, I, yeah. that's fine. So Dusty pins Arn for the one, two, three. Again, a fairly quick match, you know, uh, less than 15 minutes, but lots of fun. The heels being pinballs, essentially. I do want to mention one last thing about this match, Barry, uh, since we brought up the fact this was uh, shown on Japanese television. Barry... As you were watching, did you happen to take a look at the ads at all? They're like 20-second ads. Did you look at them? I did see them. I don't know if okay. I paid attention. So, so the first one involves some Japanese executive, and he's got uh, an American woman working either as his assistant, as his secretary. I don't know. Sex but slave. Sure. I don't know. But apparently they're doing something where she's performing some sort of task in the office, uh, typing something, and he's – He's holding an imaginary putter in the <laughs> like he's golfing in the office. And then he, he gets putter. the hole in one or whatever, and he's jumping up and down. And I'm like, what the fuck are they advertising? <laughs> and then the next one is an ad for, I'm guessing, uh, some sort of head cold product uh, where, you know, you put the, uh, the, the stuff in the cup of water and you stir it, and you drink it. Because the guy is sitting there in his robe shivering. And he has like a uh, some sort of cold pack on top of his head because, of course, that always works, at least in commercials. And he's like sitting there all miserable. And the woman that's with him, who's looking way happier than she should be, considering that the man she's with is sick. She stirs it. And, you know, then it's like some kind of, oh, we're all happy now because he's taking the medicine. The the commercials (laughs) are 20 seconds long, but they just struck me as very funny. So, yeah, we will put this match up uh, in our Facebook group, Breaking Cafe with Badrin and Barry. There's a hell of a lot worse ways than you could spend 15 minutes in watching these guys at the zenith of their popularities. Uh, yeah, maybe Dusty and Ole starting to hit the wall somewhat. But uh, so we'll post it. I uh, hope you check it out. It's a good watch. Barry, I know if there's one thing that you like, it's a good, disturbing movie. Am I correct? I do like disturbing movies. Yeah. I'm not even talking about your weird pornographic uh, fetishes. I'm talking, uh, it's a little rib. Uh, talking about generally speaking some movies that are uh disturbing movies that have been banned so barry we're going to go 15 horror movies that have been banned are you ready to go barry the primary interest here is i want to see which one of these movies that you have seen okay that works first hostel part two from 2007 yeah so i've seen uh I saw the first two. I think there's been two that have followed at least one and two. Very disturbing. It's uh, the the director, Eli Roth, is a guy kind of responsible. They call this torture porn because a lot of it, it's scenes of graphic torture. I'm not really a huge fan. I got to say the first time I saw Hostel, I was disturbed. And it just being disturbed is a good thing, though. You know, getting a reaction. It's like like in wrestling, Jeff. The best reaction is a reaction. Dead silence is the worst thing you ever want. So the first time that I ever saw a hostile movie, I was a little. I was like, "Holy fucking shit!" Like I, you know, I, I just. I think what scared me was 
that there is a real deep audience for this of, of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Yeah. And we should all be scared about that. He did a movie a few years later called The Green Inferno, which I liked, I think, a little better, but also very disturbing torture scenes in all, the, all of his movies. I have trouble thinking that we're going to end up having to post some sort of poll on the group. Uh, what is the most depraved, uh, you know, uh, deviant torture porn movie that you've not actual porn torture porn movie you've seen? Because we're going to get some real sketchy responses and we're going to learn a lot more about people in our group, Barry. So yeah. I will just tell you that this story, uh, which is about American tourists who encounter depraved, sexualized torture in Europe. OK, Barry, you know that a movie First of all, it was banned in New Zealand, okay? But a movie that's banned in Germany. Uh-oh. That says a lot to me because, yeah, the Germans are known for uh, a little bit of open-mindedness, uh, shall we say. Yes, they are. So, yes. So next, Barry, a classic uh, cinema, and that is A Clockwork Orange. Now, this is one that I've seen, Barry. So uh, your thoughts on A Clockwork Orange? Yeah, it's, it, this is one that I think was, uh, I think, from the banning aspect. Now, granted, I didn't see it when it was initially released. I saw No, it, no, I saw it many years after it came. Yeah, exactly. So it's hard for me to say why. But when I saw it and understanding about the banning, and I, I, I get it. It was, I, and I, know, I think it was banned in Britain, right? It wasn't banned here or something. Well, it, well, I'll give you the countries. Ireland, Singapore, South Africa, Brazil, Spain, South Korea, and parts, only parts of Canada. Only parts, only certain provinces yeah. of Canada. You know, Manitoba was fine, <laughs> it, but Ontario, they didn't fucking want to see this thing at all. I don't know. It's a great movie. And uh, I think the whole, you know, I, I don't know how much, you know, if you're banning this in Singapore and you can sell that in the U.S., banned in certain countries, that's really going to help people to get to the theater. The people are going to be intrigued by that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And a movie, me, a, a movie that was nominated for an, for an Academy Award for, I believe, for Best Picture. I believe the uh, the scene in question that caused all the problems, uh, not so much the graphic violence, but there was a scene uh, that was a very, uh, I mean, it was 1971. Uh, I want to say it was a kind of explicit rape scene, which, yeah. you know, the benefit of 50 years of hindsight, I can imagine in 1971 would have been uh, seen uh, very, seem very disturbing. Now, Barry, here's one I have to admit I've never seen, but whenever people talk about all-time movies uh, of a disturbing nature, of a, of a graphic nature. Oh, Barry, have you ever seen a Serbian film? So I have not. I have been told I should see it. This is a fairly recent film. I'll say just the last four or five years. I don't know. No, actually, I know it, it was 2010, Barry. 2010, okay. I know that it is, uh, it is on some streaming service currently. I have never seen it. I'm tempted to see it, but I, yeah. I, I guess I'm delaying that a little bit. Well, this one, uh, the, the summary here, a semi-retired porn star, I love that, a semi-retired porn star, uh, you know, who needs to work to make money. He agrees to appear in what he believes is an art film, but it turns out to be a murderous film with pedophilic and necrophilic themes. Oh, nothing like screwing with the dead bodies, Barry. Yeah, it's got to be pretty bad when the, the pedophile part of it is not the worst part. of it. Yeah, that does, too. I, I imagine at some point I may wind up seeing it. I'll tell you one thing, though. The older that I've gotten, 
my desire to see films uh, uh, like of such graphic and horrific nature has really diminished a lot where, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I remember, you know, when I lived in South Florida and uh, I remember Flaherty, we would trade, like I was giving him faces of death and he's giving me other, and I'm thinking this is pretty, you know, and now it's like, you know what? I really don't want to see this shit anymore, but at I some point I, I probably will see it. the titles of the film that Flaherty was sending you. Uh, no, uh, I do not. Probably uh, not. Uh, so, uh, although I will say Dave Flaherty for Lauderdale. <laughs> anyway, uh, so that film banned in Spain, Australia, New Zealand, Malaysia. Malaysia! Uh, you know, think about some of the stuff that goes on in Malaysia. <laughs> yeah. At least back in the day. And Norway, as well as briefly in the United Kingdom. So, next, Barry, 1972, The Last House on the Left. Absolutely. Now, I, for the, I, I'm assuming there is a, I believe it's a rape scene in that film, too, so. I believe that's part of it. This is a what I liked about this movie a lot, and they they remade this movie, and I I didn't like the remake so much. Two thousand nine was the remake. Yeah, because I felt that the remake was taking what made the first movie work and then trying to torture porn it a little bit, like amping it up for current times. But this movie was a low. Wes Craven, if I'm correct, Last House correct. on the Left. This must have been one of his first movies. This would be one of his first movies. It was raw, which made it work. I think the budget was probably extremely low. The acting was at times suspect for certain uh, cast members. But because there was no money behind this movie, the whole general overall vibe and tone of it is really, really creepy. Like you believe all this shit that's taking place. So this also, if I'm correct, introduced Michael Berryman to uh, the public. Michael Berryman is the guy who is uh, bald with kind of a pointy head and pointy ears, and uh, but a, but a, a real sweetheart of a guy. Is that the life. guy that was in The Hills Have Eyes? Yeah, same guy. Okay, yeah, okay. I believe uh, so, he's in this one, but I'm not sure, but I believe. So, so this one, it says, uh, it's the story of two girls who are kidnapped, raped, tortured, and murdered in the woods, and then the parents of the girls then exact revenge. So, the part of this article that I, I find kind of uh, humorous is uh, uh, they had to censor it to play it in the U.S., uh, the U.K., and Australia because of scenes of graphic violence, rape, and humiliation. So the graphic violence and the rape, okay, we're going to let you slide on that, but by God, we don't want to see any humiliation. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and I, I 1974. Think... Oh, Barry, here's another one. I saw at the old, uh, I think I saw it at a midnight movie. I would have been around 1980. Oh, a legendary horror film, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre Bear. Absolutely. So I I saw it probably a year or two before that, and I saw it at a theater on Miami Beach, an old rundown, you know, before it was South Beach, an old rundown shitty theater, and it was playing with another film called Torso. And I think I watched. Sounds I think like an educational film, Torso. Again, there's raping, there's a sex with dead people. It's, uh, it, you know, necrophilia. It just is. Uh, but I, I walk out of there and I, I was probably, let's say I'm 15 years old. That's what I'm, my assumption. Is this another movie your parents took you to? No, but this falls <laughs> along. This is, explains why I'm disturbed currently. <laughs> like, you know, okay. between the exorcist and freaks when I was a young kid and then taking me from the age of seven on to professional wrestling. So the first time I ever saw Texas Chainsaw, first I was taken with it. I was absolutely, and I think the impression that the movie made on me was one of the strongest film impressions I've ever had. Absolutely loved it. 
thought it was a great movie. John Larroquette doing the voiceover for the beginning as he's reading. I think that was his first job. But the ending of the movie, I just remember walking out going, oh, my God, what did I just see? Again, low budget, not a lot of money thrown behind it. Creepy as fuck. You know, I, I can recall when I saw this film, there were a couple of scenes. Number one, the girl they had at the dinner table. There's a scene where sure. they give the hammer to grandpa yep. and he's very frail and old and he hits her on the top of the head with the hammer. And it, it's not like, wham, like, you know, some adult, young adult hitting somebody with the hammer. It's just grotesque. It was just like, it didn't really hit her that hard, but it, the sound that it made in the movie was just like you kind of went, oh, oh my God. That just sounded, it sounded so realistic. And then, like, they, uh, what was it? I think they cut her finger open or something. And then they feed the finger to grandpa, who's like, you know, all withered up and he starts sucking on the girl's finger. Yeah. But then, of course, there's the ultimate scene where they're chasing the group of kids through the woods and there's the kid in the wheelchair. And Leatherface begins. Franklin. That was Franklin. Oh, I remember he his goes name. At, he goes at the kid with the chainsaw and he literally cuts him in half and he starts like at the top of the kid's skull begins dividing the body in half. But then there's the poor as if that's not bad enough. Okay. Or depending on the way you look at it, good enough. There's the part where the camera pans to Leatherface and he's, ah, and then it's like the chainsaw kind of sticks and it's like, and he kind of lifts it up and, like, and he goes back again to divide the body in half completely and i remember just going okay that's just like a little over the top <laughs> you know it's not enough you fucking killed the guy with the chainsaw you had to like go through the body twice to get that full chainsaw effect anyway uh despite receiving positive reviews the article writes it was still banned in several countries because of complaints of violence uh, go figure now here's another one barry oh one of the all-time classic great anytime you do a list of top five horror movies by God, if you don't include the original 1973's William Friedkin's The Exorcist, a novel by uh, William Blatty, an amazing, amazing, holy shit horror film, Barry. It is. So I was nine years old, and I think I've told this story, and my parents, we went to a drive-in in North Miami, and my parents put me in the back seat. Parenting advice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we all make mistakes as parents. You know, no one is perfect, but I'm not quite sure what the thought process was to bring a nine-year-old child to see The Exorcist. And, Quality uh, parenting by the Rose family, yes. Which, again, explains a lot currently. And uh, as I sat in the back seat, I wasn't just scared, Jeff. It was at a different level, the, f the fear that I was feeling. And I don't believe I slept that night. And uh, I think it was, I mean, there was a lot of scenes, it, the head spinning around. The, the vomit, your mother sucks cocks in hell. She's doing herself with a cross. All this I clearly remember, and it really disturbed me to no end. But should it have been banned? No. Was it really graphic for the times? Wow, right? It really was. Like, who else was doing it? But again, we're, this is an iconic horror movie. When you're talking iconic true horror movies, The Exorcist has got to be at the very, very top of the list. So, first of all, a couple things. The theme music, along oh. with movies like Halloween, Jaws, it's just so, like, when you hear those first little notes of that of that theme music, you're like, oh, yeah, shit's about to go. Did you 
watch the original and then watch the sort of updated edition that had the the quote unquote spider walk. I did, and I liked the spider walk too. Yeah, it's, uh, that was very that creepy. Was cool. Yeah, it was creepy. I I did enjoy that. Uh, any idea why that wasn't included in the? I, you know, who knows? But you know, maybe yeah. they just thought it was too. So uh, the article says that part of the reason there was a uh, uh, calls to ban it uh, in different cities in the U.S. and the United Kingdom were uh, the uh, the synagogues fainting, vomiting, and uh, this is the part that I you, you got to love this if you're looking to get a film banned. Heart attacks and at least one reported miscarriage from a woman watching it. That's a serious horror film right there, man. That is. One of the things they used to do in the 1950s and 60s was in order to uh, drum up this type of controversy and publicity. And a lot of those movies were actually fairly tame. But to get people to have that mindset was you'd walk into a theater and you would have to sign a waiver. I, I released the theater of any sort of uh, if I have a heart attack or whatever it is. And then you would watch the movie and go, that was kind of harmless at the most part. But I wonder, I wonder if if for The Exorcist, they ever thought about doing that. Yeah. Next, 2009 from Japan, Barry, Grotesque. Have you ever seen this movie? I have not. I have not. seen. I don't think I've even, even heard of it. So this involves a young couple on their first date being subjected to unspeakable torture methods including uh, being stabbed, dismembered, then healed purely for the sexual satisfaction of their captor. So when this happens, the UK refuses to release the film, which eventually leads to a backlash in Japan and DVD sales of the movie, uh, which were banned there too. So again, and we mentioned this, a movie gets banned and this causes more people do you yep. want to go see it? Like, let's see what the fuck is causing this reaction, sort of. If if I can tie a wrestling uh, connection into this conversation. So I went out to dinner, my last dinner in Tampa, Jeff, uh, and I went to Portillo's and I went with a couple of professional wrestlers that were there. One was Michael Patrick of the Dirty Blondes and Sean Davis, uh, both at our fan fest as well. And then Sean brought his lovely wife, Jessica. So they were telling me a story. And it reminded me of a story, and it was about Eddie Graham. And this goes back, I think it was the late 50s, early 60s. I forget the date. But gentleman Saul Weingaroff had been running an outlaw promotion over in Daytona. And uh, Eddie was always very much, if you're running opposition, you're the worst. You know what I mean? Like he would yeah. do nothing to destroy opposition. There was no sympathy in any level. So they eventually work their issues out, but they decide to play it up into an angle. So Eddie's at a bar and uh, or out at a restaurant, a bar, nightclub, whatever it is. And Saul walks in and they wind up getting into a fist fight. The police are called. Both are arrested. And coincidentally, Jeff, major newspapers happen to be on hand when this happened. So it's almost as if someone had planned that. Exactly. And what happened, it created great controversy and the fact that they were now working behind the scenes together, but in front of the cameras, they were bitter enemies. They were drawing record gates. And I kind of feel that's what, you know, the best controversy is some sort of controversy. You've got a movie coming out and let's be honest, maybe it's not that great of a movie. This was the way they did it in the sixties. A lot of these movies really aren't great, but they would drum up this controversy like no one's business and they would make some decent money from it. Yeah. Next movie, Barry, 2007 referred to as a quote unquote shockumentary, the Poughkeepsie tapes. 
No, never. I don't think I've ever even heard of it. So, okay, based though not based on a true story, it shares shocking images purported to be real from a serial killer who shot over 800 gory videotapes of himself doing unspeakable things, though it was never explicitly stated that it was banned from cinemas because of its psychologically disturbing content. MGM delayed the release in 2007, but it was then officially released to on-demand customers in 2014. So here again, perfect example of what you just said. You've got for seven years, this thing sitting on the shelf, people hearing about this film that is so fucking horrible and so fucking graphic that you by God have to see it. It gets released and all of a sudden it becomes a sensation. The Poughkeepsie. So I'm making a note of this one as well. I may have to try to find this. Yeah. The Poughkeepsie tapes. Have you ever been to Poughkeepsie, by the way? Uh, what's, what's the joke? Uh, no, I'm trying to think of the Popeye Doyle thing. I left uh, oh. from French Connection. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't did know. you did you pick your feet in Poughkeepsie or something like that? That's that's what the yeah. joke was. Okay, 1980, Cannibal Holocaust, Barry. Ah, Cannibal Holocaust. So this is a movie. This is one of the most divisive movies of any genre, I think, in the history of film, let alone horror, any genre. And a lot of it is you will find people and we, we've had a discussion about this in our group. It's been several years. And I remember uh, I'll give him a shout out. Ed Demko out of Pittsburgh loving this film. I hated this film, Jeff, and I'm going to tell you why. So for years, this movie was built up as the end all be all. And when I finally saw it, I was disturbed. What was I disturbed about? I was disturbed about the animal torture and killing. And, you know, I know I, I, the, the director's name was Dio Dodato or something. Something it's Ale- an Italian film. Yeah, it's yeah. Alexandro. I, I, it's an Italian. But the guy was a uh, he got in a lot of trouble, apparently. And I think. I think some of the controversy was definitely drummed up to create it, but this movie had been banned and then it it was, uh, you couldn't see it and then it was released and I, maybe he was arrested and all this other shit took place and I saw it. So the production values of this film are cheap. The acting is, uh, I think you could find better acting just by walking up to people on the streets. Some of the torture stuff and the, uh, the disembowelment is good, but the animal shit really bothered me. There is a scene with a turtle, and I've been told after the fact, usually by defenders of the film, you're told that, well, they did wind up eating the turtle, but I didn't Oh, have, that makes it better. Okay. Yeah, it, well, it didn't to me, though. I got to be honest. It really, I didn't Fucking want, logic. look, I know that if I eat a hamburger that, you know, nobody is uh, holding a cow and telling them how much they love them as the cow dies. I yeah. get this is ugly. But at the same time, I don't want to see it. I yeah. really don't want to see it. And I didn't want to see this this turtle being killed, tortured, mutilated, killed. There's a lot to the film. And I, I just I'm just not a fan. This film, though, Jeff, has staunch defenders, not just people who will go. This is a good film. People will tell you this is one of the great horror films of all time. I disagree with that. So. I can tell you that uh, I have not seen this movie. I will not watch uh, this type of movie based on what Barry has told me because I got to be honest with you. I've never seen the movie Marley and me right. because I know what happens at the end of the movie. <laughs> you know, that's just me. And I realize that's a dog and it, it, maybe it's different watching a turtle being killed as opposed to a dog. 
But uh, there are apparently in the movie, there are scenes where uh, a large turtle, a squirrel monkey, a pig, yeah. and a boa constrictor are killed. So, yeah, that's right there. I I'm tapping out. I got no interest. Okay, and here's one. I'm going to take a, a rough guess, and I'm going to absolutely guarantee that Barry Rose has seen this movie. Barry, 1972, John Waters, Pink Flamingos. Oh, I mean, my God. So <laughs> I've, uh, I, I knew that you'd fucking seen this. You one. knew. So I went to, and I've told this story, I went to a, when I lived in New York, Jeff, in 1984, guess what I was doing at that time? A server? Server at Tavern on the Green. There you go. And they happened to have a John Waters Film Festival, which will be one of the greatest nights of my life for a couple of reasons. And you know what? And I'll even talk about it, Jeff. I will. Uh, how much time? We don't have a lot of time. We'll pick up that story for another day, Jeff. But I went to the John Waters Film Festival, and I believe I saw three films that night. And Pink Flamingos was one. And when I came out of the theater... I was almost a different person. I was, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And of course, you know, it's really built around the end scene, which is I'm sure what you're going to refer to where divine Glenn Milstead bends over the dog shits. He picks up the hot turd and he puts it in his mouth and starts to chew. But um, boom. <laughs> is that what you were referring to? No, no, to? I mean, I knew that. Was, that okay. Happened, so I, I was and aware it's not, of that. It, yeah, and it was legit. I mean, he's talked, you know, he before he passed, he talked about it. John Waters has talked about it. But in 1984, realized VCRs were, what, a couple years old, max? So I didn't have a VCR. I didn't get a VCR until late 84. So when you would hear about these things, you were like, fuck, I got to run to the theater and see this, right? The movie is a lot of fun. The movie is super bizarre. And the movie is defined by the fact that Divine ate some dog shit, though there's a lot more to the movie than just that. So in this article that I'm uh, using to, uh, for this uh, discussion, it says uh, it was uh, banned in uh, many towns for 25 years because of its portrayal of homosexuality. God forbid. Yep, there is. Um, explicit sexual content, animal cruelty. Now, do you remember scenes... Of, of cruelty so, to animals, or are they talking about the scene where the dog shits and no? Uh, so there is a scene where there is Edie the Egg Lady, and she is a grown, heavyset woman, missing teeth, and a really bad Baltimore accent. And she lives Baltimore. in Baltimore, exactly. She lives in a crib, and somebody. I, and actually, it wasn't her. The her divine son winds up having sex with a woman. And while that's happening, he has a live chicken and I guess is raping or having sex with the woman with the live chicken as well. I think that's what they're discussing with the animal cruelty. Okay. So, yeah. uh, yeah. I, did you prefer this one more <laughs> than the uh, next one? Female trouble. Well, no, female trouble might be female trouble is the, is where divine is raped. She's Tracy Turnblad, if I'm correct, was her name in the film. And she's raped by a, uh, or maybe, no, you know what? She was Linda Davenport in Female Trouble. She is raped by a giant lobster. And uh, if you've ever seen where a guy in a giant lobster costume comes in and starts to rape divine, and it's not, I got to say, rape is not a funny subject by any means, but it is so cartoonish it's not meant to be 
rape as we know it is defined by what we know it as has been mentioned in some of the other films we talked about. Yeah, yeah. No, no, this is not, you know, you can clearly see that they're doing this. And I'm not sure that rape, you know, he's sexually molesting her. But yeah, it's absurd to the point that it's a guy in a giant lobster suit. The whole movie is just completely absurd. Saw them both on the same night. Again, uh, life changing on many different levels. So I will say uh, I have not seen either one of those two films. I did see uh, Dawn Davenport. Why the fuck was I saying Linda? It's Dawn okay. Davenport. Yes. I saw Hairspray and I saw Crybaby, which were both, I believe, John Waters films. And, and I like both of those. So yes. so this is the difference with that. That's, he actually had money to make those films. Okay. So those actually have a budget. You have Johnny Depp. You've got a lot going on. Did you see the original Hairspray or the remake? Uh, no, it's the original one. So I, like that's, a, that's, a, that, that's a really good movie, too. It's much yeah. better than the remake, in my opinion. A really good movie, and it's nice. It's not like, you know, it's not as outlandish as his earlier works. And even uh, Crybaby. Crybaby is actually a good movie. And, you know, he does... He's still John Waters. He had, uh, I don't know, what was the woman's name? Screwface or something like that? Yes. Yeah, she yeah. was in Crybaby. And she's in Crybaby, exactly. So he he does keep this whole kind of where he's got these unusual characters and stuff. But his earlier works were, a lot of them were shot with like handheld cameras. He didn't have any big camera crew. He just was out to make this outlandish, fuck you, middle well, they, finger they call kind it of statement. Guerrilla filmmaking is what yeah. they used to call it, yeah. Which it was. Yeah. But I love John Waters films. He does this thing now where he goes around and uh, he does John Waters Christmas shows. And then we'll go around and do these symposiums discussing his films. But I, I think I've liked just about everything he's ever done. So next, Barry, on our list of banned films. Oh, you know, I have not seen every movie on the on the list. I've seen some. Here is one that I've heard but never seen the human centipede movies, Barry. Now the one they're uh, specifically referring to on this list is the human centipede part two. Have you seen this fine cinematic production, Mr. Rose? <laughs> so I have not, I did see the first part and I got to tell you, it's a, it, it was a very unique film because I, I don't recall anything ever coming up with a storyline like this before. And it, what kind of depraved mind if you under, you know what it's about, right, Jeff? Uh, uh, yeah, share did, with the audience, if you will. Yeah, so this uh, this guy uh, basically kidnaps all these people and he sews their mouths on the anuses of other people. So you could just figure out exactly what happens. Okay. And it literally yeah, makes yeah, it makes a human centipede. I'm curious about part two. I, I'm guessing if part two is on the list and part one is not that part two is even more depraved than the first well, one. I will so. just read you from this uh, article that we are going by here. The first movie was shocking, but not banned anywhere. Whereas the human centipede part two was deemed too extreme for British audiences. And it did not receive a classification and was banned in the UK, Australia and New Zealand. You know what that means, Barry, you know, who could not see this movie in the UK. Oh, I, UK. So we're, this is all of the UK. John Lee from Wales did not get to watch the human centipede part two. We're sorry, John. Anyway, uh, the article continues. Funnily enough, the third movie, which features the human centipede concept on an even bigger scale, slipped by centers without alteration. 
So go go figure. Uh, parts wow. one and three, not too bad. Part two, though, by God, we're not letting you see this. Yeah, that that seems to make a lot of sense. Sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, what did you think of part one, though? Did you, uh, I, uh, you know what? I, I think I, I think I was intrigued by part of it as a whole. I didn't love the movie. It just, for whatever reason, I didn't connect with it. But I'm definitely intrigued by the whole the whole concept of it. Okay, next on the list, Barry, Sallow or the 120 Days of Sodom. Never Have saw you it. seen this one? Okay, from 1975, this Italian horror art film, that's a great combo, horror and art, oh, was yeah. widely censored and banned after it debuted in 1975. Uh, the nihilistic movie based on corrupt Italian libertines, that's the first time we've ever used the word uh, Italian libertines, by the yeah. way, featured intense scenes of extreme violence, sadism, and sexual and psychological torture. Is this now on your to-watch list? <laughs> uh, I would give it a shot. You know, the whole we as we've been talking, the whole torture thing, I I've kind of moved on from. It's not really my favorite genre of horror or subgenre of horror, but uh, yeah, I, I would probably give it a shot and try to watch it. Well, uh, it's interesting because the article concludes by saying, while many films on this list have received releases after decades past, Sallow remains banned in several countries today. Now, next, Barry. Oh, this is this is one when you talk about movies that were banned. One of the first ones that I had ever heard about uh, being so controversial that it was banned is 1978's I Spit on Your Grave. Yeah, so this is, I've seen this. So there is I Spit on Your Grave, and then there was a remake, I'll say about a decade ago, and I believe even a part two came out. So the storyline basically is here, a lady is, a woman is raped by several very depraved, scummy human beings, and she decides to uh, get her revenge by killing all these guys. So I will tell you the hardest part about the first, this is the original. I saw the original and then I saw the remake. Before the you say anything, scene, uh, yes. was it the rape scene or the bathtub scene? It was the rape scene. The rape okay. scene is really, it's very realistic. And I want to say in the original, wasn't it Camille Keaton? That uh, was the... I, dude, I, I've never seen it. I just remember okay. hearing about the differences. Uh, the scene that Barry refers to, uh, according to the article here, is almost 30 minutes of a gang rape scene, which and it's, uh, it's tough, man. It is yeah. tough. And I, I remember, I, I believe it's, it's either, I think it's Camille Keaton, who is the niece of uh, the late Buster Keaton. And, uh, it is really, really tough to watch this. And I believe in an interview with her, cause this movie is 50 years old at this point that she even said this was really difficult. Again, a 30 minute rape scene. Oh my God. It, it's yeah. too disturbing. Honestly, I think it's too disturbing. Yeah, so uh, the article mentions that uh, it's show, showing the rape and revenge journey of Jennifer Hills. I'm guessing that's the character's name. Yeah. Uh, I Spit on Your Grave featured a lengthy 30 minutes of a gang rape. Famed film critic Roger Ebert called it, quote, a vile bag of garbage, unquote, upon its release to theater. The likes of West Germany, Ireland, Norway, and Iceland banned the movie while heavily censored versions were shown in Australia, Canada, and the UK. Uh, as I said before, Barry, when Germany thinks you're too extreme, <laughs> that's usually yeah. a, a sign that uh, maybe bad things. Yeah. You're pretty and, fucking and, extreme, yes. Yeah, what, I, what I was referring to earlier was there apparently is a scene, and again, I have not watched this movie, but I have 
heard, uh, I believe it might have been on Siskel and Ebert. They're apparently, and Barry, if you've seen the movie, tell the folks what you recall about the scene, where a guy is in the bathtub, the girl has come for revenge, and it just involves a guy sitting naked in a bathtub, and I'm going to guess either a knife or a razor blade to the genitalia. Yeah, that is. And, and there's another movie called, uh, have you ever, I don't, this will not be on your list, but it's called Teeth. Have you ever heard of this? I'm aware of what teeth is about. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And that's, if you're a guy and you have a, you have a schlong uh, between (laughs) your legs, it's the movie teeth in this scene that you're describing is extremely disturbing to you. Here's the, here's what the issue that I have with this movie is the rape scene didn't need to be 30 minutes. And I, I got to tell you, I didn't realize it was even 30 minutes. I just knew it was really fucking long. I love the idea of a woman Especially, you're talking 72, right? Is that what you said? Uh, let me just see here. It was 1978. 78, okay. So we're uh, 43 years removed. But 43 years ago, to have a really strong female lead exacting revenge and killing the people that raped her, I think you've got a pretty good movie there. Why you would have a 30-minute rape scene? You know, you, you could have shown something and then done a lot of it off screen. You know, I don't know. But that that to me, that really brings the movie down, in my opinion. It's too. No, I, I, you know, I, I can remember watching uh, The Accused, uh, yeah. which yeah. is like nominated for Oscars. And the the scene in the bar with Jodie Foster being raped uh, is extremely painful to watch. And, you know, just yeah. like, wow, especially, you know, if you've known somebody that has been raped. And, you know, unfortunately, I I know women in my past that that have been the victims of rape and and to sit there and have to watch that. And let's just say the what you saw in the accused, which a was a far briefer look at the violence that in you know is incurred when you're involving rape. It's, it's not sexual. Let's not oh, let's no. not beat around yeah. the bush here. It, it's nothing sexual about a rape. Uh, it's it's pure violence and domination and stuff like that. And yeah, so I can imagine one that goes 30 minutes. How uh, horrible that must be. Barry, you referenced uh, the next film on the list. I believe you said you saw it. I have never seen this movie or the sequels that followed because, as we have mentioned, I am not a fan of seeing any kind of deaths of animals in a movie. 1978's Faces of Death. Yeah. So I, I got to say, it's it's currently playing. I think it's on Tubi, which was something that you had just mentioned off air when we were talking between me, you, and Sweet Lou. It is playing on Tubi. For the most part, it's not as shocking as it was when it first came out when you see it. The only thing I remember about the animals, and it's ugly, I don't want it, but there is a scene where in some country, Malaysia or somewhere over in Asia, they are cracking open the skulls of live monkeys and eating the brains. And uh, yeah, I have to, I mean, it's disturbing. I think the movie overall is, you know, it's not, uh, it, it doesn't hold up to the way that, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, whatever the time has been, but that scene alone is one of the few things that I actually remember about the film. We're different people as we get older, Jeff. And like, I remember watching Faces of Death when I was younger and then being able to go out and live my life, right? And I don't, yeah. I don't think I could watch Faces of Death right now and be able to go out and do something. I would probably have to go lie down. So I think I want to say that's the evolution of me. But uh, yeah, and I don't know. It, why do you think people want to see something like Faces of Death also? Like, what's the what's the well, attraction watching you, you something You know, like it's – here's the thing that I remember about the movie is that back in the day when a blockbuster video was a thing, 
uh, or going to your local mom and pop video stores, Faces of Death was always out. <laughs> like, yeah. It, it was being rented in mass. It became almost a pop cultural phenomenon. And, you know, it, yep. that, I don't I'm not exactly sure what that says about our society that so many people back then wanted to see, uh, you know, it, it's like. When you were in driver's ed class when you were a kid, Barry, did you watch the uh, <laughs> the bloody asphalt and uh, oh, red yeah. highway, whatever the ones, where they yeah. always showed the horrible accidents that, you know, uh, they, they wanted to dissuade. First time we've ever used the word dissuade on this Good podcast, work. Barry. Uh, you know, they wanted to dissuade people from, you know, seeing these horrible films and experiencing, you know, what would be uh, undoubtedly a horrible, horrible death on the highway if, God forbid, you should drink or drive or or something like that. But I never understood the fascination with people wanting to see something as grisly as this. So I get it if we're talking 30 and 35 years ago, because it, it you know, I don't, I'm not quite sure I had ever seen anybody die before. It, you know, it was, I, I definitely wasn't looking for the animals, though there is a curiosity factor as to what the cultural aspect of all this is, because apparently this was common. I don't, I don't believe it's currently common, but it was common. But with the Internet today, you know, if you wanted to see somebody dying, if that really was what you had never seen it, you pop on the Internet, you'll be able to find hundreds of people dying. It'll be out there. But when you stop and you think about it, you got to go, why would you want to see somebody dying? You know, if you've seen it once, why do you want to see a whole movie about people dying? You know, I don't know. Uh, you know, I just uh, I really, quite frankly, don't get that. <laughs> no, I don't know, get it either. I, <laughs> I don't understand the fascination. OK, are, so, are we are we maturing, Jeff? Is this what's uh, happening? We must right be. Now? God oh, help us. God. All, you know? Yeah, uh, we're not the uh, we're not behaving like the 13 or 14 year old boys that we once were, Barry. So, uh, Barry, <laughs> the next movie, and I believe this is the last movie on there. You know, and, and I have to say there were. Movies on this list, you know, the faces of death, uh, you know, uh, the human centipede films. I kind of almost understand why those films are. But a movie like the even The Exorcist, uh, while it was scary, or 1981's The Evil Dead. I don't understand how just a, a kind of a mainstream horror film would make it on there. So what was the question, though, Jeff? No, no. The Evil Dead is on is the last movie to discuss. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen, shit, I've seen The Evil Dead 1 and 2. I think there may even be a part 3. There was a, a series, I believe it was on Stars four or five years ago, and it was Ash versus The Evil Dead. And uh, it was, the first season was great, kind of tailed off after the first season. But I, why, why would, I mean, I, Evil it, Dead. This, became, this series became a cottage industry for Bruce Campbell, for God's Absolutely. Sake. And he is, and to his credit, he took the ball and he ran with it. He does all types of fan conventions, and he's super popular, super popular at these conventions. And I know he's on a new TV show as well. So I've seen The Evil Dead. I mean, I wonder, I mean, there's, is, is it a little graphic? Yeah, is it sexual at times? It is, but. So would, let me ask yeah. you, based on this, okay, so let me, I'll just read you what they say in the article, and then I have a question to ask you. All right. uh, the article says, it's hard to believe that the same director who gave the world the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man trilogy <laughs> and a Wizard of Oz spinoff movie made his debut with a horror film that was banned upon its release. Sam Raimi made the movie while he was still a student, and The Evil Dead was deemed to be one of the most gruesome and gory films ever made in 1981. It performed better overseas than it did in the U.S., but was uh, was and reportedly still is banned in some countries. Uh, the 2013 remake was banned by the likes of Finland, the Ukraine, and Singapore. So... Am I confusing this with uh, another movie 
Was there a scene where a young woman is raped by a tree? Or is yeah, that, I'm thinking of cabin I, fever. No, I think it's, I, I, I don't know. Because I, I, I've seen that one as well. I believe it's Evil Dead, but I, it wasn't. So I'm just thinking uh, maybe that's what it was that made it so controversial. That's Yeah, but it wasn't like one of those really, you know, it wasn't that 30-minute graphic rape scene yeah, from exactly. a spit on your grave. So I don't know. And here was the other thing. The Evil Dead movies, we're all very much tongue in cheek. There's a, a huge comedic aspect to all of them. Yeah. So yeah, I I don't know that 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 one strikes me as a little odd. Sam Raimi, great director, by the way. Also. Oh, absolutely. So yeah. uh, Bruce Campbell's greatest role. We're going a little off topic here, Barry. Do you know what movie I'm thinking of? Completely underrated. It was Bubba Hotep. Oh, Bubba Hotep. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I fucking love Bubba Hotep. If you've never seen that movie, Elvis. good Lord, run or 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 do whatever you got to do streaming to watch Bubba Hotep. Barry, it's not bad, but let's just discuss Bubba Hotep for a second. So basically what you have is you have Elvis Presley, in yep. fact, <laughs> not having died, but now in a nursing home. Nursing home. And he's dealing with uh, the reincarnation of an Egyptian mummy that comes to the nursing home and wants to yep. suck the life out of the people <laughs> that are about to die anyway. It is bizarre. It is uh, There's horror aspects. There are certainly comedic aspects. But seeing Bruce Campbell with that chin of his uh, as an old, paunchy, grumpy Elvis is a fucking riot. It is, and he's 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 got the Elvis hairdo. He's grayer now, but he's still got the Elvis hair. Who directed Bubba Hotep? Oh God, uh, maybe while we're talking about it, Lou, can you look yeah. up that? Because he's got this great relationship with with Ramey, and I know that he's they they always work together. There's there's a great relationship there. But a lot of Bruce Campbell's movies, he plays a really similar character too. He his movies are always horror to some degree but there's this whole comedic kind of tongue-in-cheek sure. aspect which is similar to Bubba Hotep and Evil Dead as well so curious yeah. if uh, I, will, yeah. I will say Bubba Hotep uh, not banned in Singapore or Norway right. or any of those <laughs> countries fun movie though Jeff fun movie Barry another fine episode now rounding the turn heading for home what was your favorite part of this segment Bear? The fact that we don't just stick to wrestling, Jeff. Oh, I can't believe you said that. That's usually my line. That is yours. Uh, a nice match of the week. Uh, the longest opening segment in the history of the show. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we recorded that. Lou came on. It was just like, yes, that was. <laughs> so we discussed the films that were banned, breakfast foods. We offer a lot of variety here, as Barry said, because we don't just stick to I'll say one thing. We like to offer a lot of different variables. So I will say on behalf of my co-host, Barry Rose, and our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman, worrying about that extended, elongated opening, Breaking Cafe with Baldrin and Barry is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. I am Jeff Baldrin. Take it home, Lou.